The issues facing a growing silver population are gaining ground. Singapore's baby boomers are now exiting the workforce. Would those approaching retirement have enough resources to maintain their current standard of living? Would future policy changes in healthcare, housing and pension impact their retirement adequacy? Facing a rapidly aging population, Singapore is presented with urgent policy challenges. Yet there is very little data on the economic, health and family circumstances of older Singaporeans. In response, the Centre for Research on the Economics of Aging, or CREA, at the Singapore Management University has been collecting monthly data on a panel of Singaporeans aged between 50 and 70 years, resulting in the Singapore Life Panel or SLP. SMU's Professor Bryce Hool and Professor Rima Vaithyanathan detailed the methodology by which the SLP was constructed in a published paper titled High Frequency Internet Survey of a Probability Sample of Older Singaporeans, the Singapore Life Panel. In this podcast, Stephen Hoskins, Senior Research Associate at CREA, introduces the SLP and how it yields rich and remarkable insights to Singapore's ageing situation. Stephen, what exactly is the Singapore Life Panel? So the Singapore Life Panel is a high-frequency, population-representative, longitudinal panel survey of Singaporeans aged 50 to 70. So what I mean by high-frequency is that it's run every single month. By population representative, I mean that it uh, directly represents uh, a subset of the population in Singapore aged 50 to 70. Uh, and longitudinal means that we're talking to many of the same people month after month after month. So we can track changes in their life uh, as they approach and, and go through retirement. Uh, it's actually the largest uh, monthly internet-based survey in the world. Uh, and it forms the bedrock of the research that we're doing at CREA. Uh, so we're conducting a program of economic research uh, studying various aspects relating to ageing and retirement that involves work, uh, saving, retirement and, and obviously health outcomes. Uh, and this research is generously supported by some funding from uh, the Ministry of Education's Academic Research Tier 3 grant. Why does the panel collect data on a monthly basis and not say annually? So many comparable surveys have been established in overseas countries uh, and there are a few here as well. Uh, examples would be um, the health and retirements uh, study in the USA, uh, Charles in China, JSTAR in Japan, but these are typically every, run every year or every two years. And what this means is that if something's changed in the time period between those two surveys, uh, you can't really observe the full impact of what happened in the meantime. So by collecting monthly data here in Singapore, uh, this enables us to track the impact of shocks to the family structure, changes in their health status, maybe losing their job, uh, all these kinds of household impacts uh, in the months immediately after the shock occurs. And that's really useful. Uh, in addition, we can follow people uh, as their life cycle progresses. So we've established this panel with people uh, from 50 to 70. This means we can watch them month to month uh, during their 50s as they start doing saving for retirement, uh, as they process through retirement in their 60s, and then onwards uh, into their retirement years and, and as uh, their health starts to change and those sorts of things. What was the methodology by which the panel was established? Okay, let me outline our, our recruitment methodology a little bit. So uh, DOS provided us with a sampling frame of 22,500 eligible addresses. What this means was that it was uh, addresses in Singapore that they thought contained a 50 to 69 year old Singaporean citizen or permanent resident. 
Uh, and these were stratified by uh, their URA planning area and their house type using a, an equal probability method. So any household that fits those categories I've described had exactly a 4% chance of being, uh, of being pulled into our sampling frame. What we did was in uh, May 2015, uh, for three months from then, we used traditional methods to contact them. So we sent them letters, we went and knocked on their doors, we gave them phone calls. Uh, and when we got in touch with them, we said, is there somebody here who is a Singapore citizen or a permanent resident aged 50 to 69? And everybody who fit that criteria was invited to participate in the panel. If they chose to participate, we also included their spouses, regardless of their age or citizenship status. And then once people uh, decided to join the, the panel, eligible individuals, they were immediately routed to a baseline survey. They could do it on a tablet or uh, using a, a web link. And uh, they were able to complete just some basic information about their demographics, the composition of their household, uh, some of their forward-looking attitudes about their retirement preparedness and their financial uh, situation. And then uh, we started the full survey panel. The first month of that was in September 2015. So our core monthly survey has been running every single month since September 2015, with additional quarterly surveys in, Octo in uh, well, every four months from them. And uh, January 2016 was our first annual survey. I understand you've been running it every month. How do you get respondents? So let me just yeah, I'll outline our, our monthly sort of cycle that we take in-house in, uh, in and this will explain sort of what it looks like at CREA and, and how it feels from the respondent's perspective. So a researcher might approach me with a new, uh, new subject and we'll start by writing up the survey questions. Then we get them approved through IRB internally. Uh, we start programming them up. We get them translated into Chinese, Malay and Tamil. We've got all four languages available for our respondents. We conduct rigorous testing on our online platform to make sure that it's all working fine and route respondents through the surveys depending on their answers. Then we start fielding on the first of the month uh, and it runs for about three weeks. We contact our respondents to tell them the survey's open with letters, um, which will include their vouchers from the last month, SMS, texts, emails and phone calls, just to kind of encourage them to participate. Uh, we have about 400 student uh, hours uh, making phone calls in-house and they uh, will call up the respondents and encourage them to complete the survey. They might provide assistance if they need it and many respondents uh, have their children help them as well. We also supplement these with in-person sessions at five libraries across Singapore. Uh, and the uh, median completion time will take about 15 minutes for a typical monthly survey. That's the middle person in terms of time frame. Some people are slower, some people are faster. And uh, at the end of all this, we will clean the data up and uh, make it available for publication. Usually about two or three weeks after the survey closes, our researchers can start working with that data straight away. So when we initially established the panel, uh, we provided our respondents with a very detailed um, informed consent form, which explained what would be required of them, what the risks would be, what the benefits they would enjoy from it was. And in that, we committed to them uh, that we would uh, de-identify their data so that anybody who is working with the uh, raw data in the data set uh, is uh, completely walled off from any personal information about the respondents. So we essentially have a, a wall inside our organization. There are some people who know uh, the names and addresses and phone numbers that tie with each primkey, but those people don't work with the data. And then we have the other people, the researchers, who work with the de-identified data that just has an anonymous primkey on it, uh, and they can see all of the data, but they have no idea who these specific people are. And of course, whenever we publish uh, papers or conduct research with outside organizations, all of the data is aggregated and, and combined into overall results. We're never reporting any individual person's results uh, in, in public. 
How many respondents participate in total? Great question. So from those uh, 22,500 households, we had respondents from about 11,500 uh, choose to participate. So that's a, a response rate of about 52%, which is quite good for an internet survey. Uh, from then onwards, this, this sort of corresponds to about 16,000 people. So we had 16,000 respondents in the baseline survey. And we've heard from 13,000 of those one more time at least. So there's about 3,000 people who did the baseline and then decided it wasn't for them. But we still have about 12,000 people in the active panel, people who we're contacting every month and, uh, and asking them to participate. And uh, of that 12,000, we typically hear from about 8,000. Our average number of responses in a given month is 8,000. And the composition of that 8,000 is that 3,200 of them have completed every single month of those 42 surveys. These people are really useful for us because we can observe everything that's been happening in their lives. We also have about 6,000 people who have missed uh, four or fewer waves, so they complete one in every 10. They're also really, really helpful for us. And of course, we like making sure that we have the data from the other 2,000 as well, whenever they pop in. Uh, and this all sums up, if you, if you take 8,000 responses across our 44 waves plus that baseline, we now have about 370,000 observations of data. And uh, given all the additional subjects, the additional modules we've been running, this corresponds to about 2,400 unique variables. These are specifically different questions from one another. We have 2,400 different, uh, different questions. Yeah. What are the topics or categories of data collected by the panel? Yes, as I was saying, we now have 2,400 unique variables, so we have data across a huge range of topics. Uh, in terms of our monthly data, the, the core questions that we have, you know, 44 different observations on any given person, uh, we sort of take a picture of a little bit on their household situation, so we ask uh, how their marital status is, looking for changes in those. Uh, we observe how many people live in the household and what their ages are. We ask about their uh, work situation as well as their spouses that we then jump into uh, collecting their income from both work, transfers from family members, government programs, and from their investments. Uh, we take their income and, and we then move into spending and we ask uh, what they spent in the last month as a total household on uh, 44 different categories of consumption. Uh, and we also ask about their health status. So we, we ask if they visited a doctor, were they diagnosed with a new, um, a new disease, and, and uh, that can be useful for health shock analysis. In terms of supplementing that, every quarter we add a few more um, subjective well-being indicators about their physical and emotional health. We ask uh, some of their uh, expectations about work in the future and their uh, health condition in the future. We ask about their social engagement, how often they're meeting with friends and family and doing various hobbies. Uh, and their interaction with some government programs such as the GST vouchers, YouSave, uh, Silver Support Scheme and so on. In our annual module, uh, which adds kind of another 10 to 15 minutes for any given person, we ask a really, really detailed module on their wealth position. So we're asking about the total value of any assets they have, any investments, their house, um, any uh, retirement schemes they've bought into, what's in their CPF accounts, and we offset that with their debts they hold so we can get a picture of their household's wealth position. So we've got a huge range of data, and we're getting more and more diverse with that every single month, which is one of the main advantages of the Singapore Life Panel. Does the SLP have data on all aspects of retirement? How does it compare with other official statistics? Yeah, we do. So retirement is a very, very complex and multifaceted uh, um, process. 
which involves the interaction of kind of looking forward at what your health is likely to be in the future, how long you expect to live, what resources you're going to need to afford the lifestyle you want. And so we have collected data on kind of both, both sides of that. So the economic situation involves their income and their spending, which then contributes to overall saving and wealth position, uh, as well as their familial support systems and, uh, and the financial literacy, their kind of risk strategies. We then combine that with the risks that they're uh, exposed to in their later years. So this may be periods of unemployment, health shocks, um, death of a spouse, and changes in their house prices. And this allows us to paint a full picture of their retirement preparedness. And this means, uh, yeah, their wealth and what they can expect to draw down on that, uh, how well insured they are against those risks, how well they feel they're prepared for retirement in terms of what they feel they need to live on, uh, and uh, what their health is likely to do and, and how this will overall affect their subjective well-being, their happiness as they move through retirement. So during the publication of our methodology paper, uh, we conducted a range of tests that took the data we were getting from our baseline surveys and compared that to official uh, statistics that are being published by uh, DOS and SYNCSTAT, uh, actually an MOM as well. And what we found was that we had a really, really close match between our baseline survey and, uh, and uh, population statistics on age, uh, gender, race, ethnic, uh, education, labor force participation, their monthly income from work, uh, their expenditure and the type of households they, they live in. So all of that data has a very, very close match to the official population statistics for this age group, the 50 to 70 year olds in, uh, in 2015. So we can say from this that it's really, really highly population representative and analysis of this data will therefore be nicely reflective of what's going on for real Singaporeans in that age group out in the world today. How does the Singapore Life Panel contribute to CREA's research? How does this research impact Singapore's ageing situation? So the Singapore Life Panel is uh, the foundation of CREA. It's essentially the bedrock upon which all of CREA's ageing research is built. We're using that to engage in a wide range of research projects, uh, both with government ministries, uh, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Health, uh, MOM, uh, with NTUC's Ong Teng Chong uh, Labour Research Institute, uh, and with some organisations within SMU as well, including the TCS iCity Lab. And we're engaging in research projects with all those organisations to help inform uh, policies and address the economic challenges facing older Singaporeans. We also have external collaborations through our researchers with uh, numerous uh, Singaporean and overseas uh, universities. This includes NUS, RAND in the USA, uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton uh, Business School, Yale, uh, New Zealand's uh, Auckland University of Technology, and uh, University of Adelaide and Monash in Australia. That's kind of the relationships, right? So we're using the research that's based on the Singapore Life Panel to inform a, a wide range of policymakers in Singapore, uh, and also to engage with other uh, aging research institutions and to publish uh, research papers that are available for the public to read. And, and many of those are available on our website. Just to summarize kind of some of the main themes that we've been addressing and, and how these are informing policies. So um, what I mentioned, housing, um, one of the main ones we've addressed, addressed there is that kind of the middle class in Singapore poor um, have a, a moderate amount of retirement savings but a large proportion of those are tied up in the value of their house and of course um, you can't just spend your house you have to convert it to a cash flow and so there's a, a considerable amount of research identifying ways that this could be achieved uh, we've seen a little bit with the lease buyback scheme reverse mortgages are available people can choose to take uh, tenants or, or to downsize their property but um, there's more work to be done in this area and we're, we're looking to inform policymakers on the way that this could be achieved successfully, especially with people having lots of ties to their neighbourhood and um, perhaps needing the right kind of options where they are. 
in addition to this, we've been studying uh, retirement preparation, and as I mentioned, that's a very wide topic and uh, lots and lots to be done there. But um, in general terms, we have done some work on retirement adequacy with uh, with NTUC, looking at the different groups who have uh, you know X months worth of saving um, available to them. Uh, we've also been studying the role of financial knowledge and financial literacy in terms of enabling people to make uh, better investment decisions. And we do see that people who, who have better financial knowledge are, are better able to uh, collect wealth, they hold more complex investments and are better diversified to risk, and they also actually have better health overall as well, um, even controlling for the underlying socioeconomic disparities. We're designing an actuarial framework which can contribute to research on pensions and designing pension schemes. Specifically, this means with CPF life. Um, this framework can be used to assess different options for the CPF life payout, uh, looking at you know, how you can adjust it to account for differences in mortality risk uh, and different assumptions about what the returns could be in the future for those investments. Moving out of labour, this is an area of research that I've been quite heavily involved in. So we've been studying uh, the determinants of retirement, the different factors that are driving the age at which people to expect to work towards. Uh, and what we're finding is that it's wealth that's the main determining factor of retirement age in Singapore. Uh, overseas, where they have kind of hard thresholds by which you qualify for a guaranteed pension for the rest of your life, um, these kind of thresholds are, are much more significant for retirement decisions, as well as changes in your health status because you know, you might just get sick and decide, well, I've got my pension, I'll, I'll leave. But here in Singapore, uh, because, you know, your retirement financing is mostly driven by your own CPF account, uh, people are mostly driven by the wealth they've managed to accumulate. And for people who may be in poor health and not have that much wealth accumulated, um, this may mean some quite long work lives. In addition, we've been studying the impact of unemployment shocks on this population. So people who are in their 50s and 60s trying to work, trying to save up for retirement, what happens when they experience an unemployment shock? And of course, we observe declines in their income and they have to cut back on their spending for sort of up to six months, maybe longer for the higher socioeconomic groups, uh, and some declines in their health and, and their um, subjective well-being. Uh, in addition, I've done some research with uh, NTUC's OTCI Institute, and uh, what we saw there, this was on training programs, and we found that, um, that mature workers in Singapore feel really positively about training programs. They're really eager to participate in them. We also observed that employers in Singapore are really supportive of that, but we do find that uh, there's a little disparity in the opportunities that people are getting. The PMETs get lots of training opportunities, and the non-PMETs not so much. So we found some, some need to kind of expand training uh, to the, the entirety of Singapore's workforce to help people stay uh, up to date with new technologies and, and keep working. And particularly our mature workers are really interested in um, training in computer and IT skills, and there may be some need for uh, training programs to be made a little bit more age-friendly. Talking a little bit about health shocks uh, and, and changes in health, we see that people who get a new diagnosis of a major chronic condition uh, experience large increases in their expenditure in, in that month and up to about six months afterwards. And in order to pay for that, they have to kind of uh, cut back on their spending. Actually, they also observe decreased ability to work. And sometimes their spouse goes to work to sort of compensate for that, but it's not quite enough. And they do have to cut back on their leisure spending uh, to make up for it. And this also leads to declines in subjective well-being. And we see some benefits from having health insurance to pr protect against that. Uh, and of course, we've been studying the interaction between health and employment quite a lot and, and watching the ways in which very, uh, declines in health status can take you out of the workforce or make it harder to stay employed. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about our research.